Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome back to Behind the Knife, and today we are going to continue our COVID coverage with hearing from a critical care surgeon who's on the front lines at Cornell Medical Center. We're lucky enough to have Dr. Mayur Narayan. He is a critical care and acute care surgeon at uh, Weill Cornell Medical Center. Uh, Dr. Narayan received his bachelor's from the Old Dominion University and then attended Eastern uh, Virginia Medical School as a member of the highly competitive uh, BSMD program. He stayed on to complete his internship and general surgery residency at EVMS. Dr. Narayan completed a surgical critical care and traumatology fellowship at Shock Trauma. He then received a master's of public health uh, at Johns Hopkins and also an MBA from Johns Hopkins. And then he also went on to receive his master's in uh, health professions education from Harvard. And we also want to congratulate Dr. Narayan uh, as he's an expecting father in the coming weeks amongst the mayhem that we're currently in. Uh, so, Dr. Narayan, welcome to Behind the Knife. It's an honor to have you. Thank you very much to the both of you for having me. I'm a big fan of Behind the Knife and privileged to be on. Obviously, it's trying times that all of us are facing, and those of you who haven't yet seen the onslaught of patients, or the surge of patients, it's coming your way. And so anything I can do to help spread the lessons that we've learned, some of the mistakes we've made, you know, I'm happy to do so. And to help us uh, break down some of the critical care, we have uh, Patrick Georgeoff. He's a fellow at UT Houston, a surgical critical care fellow. Um, so welcome, Patrick, to Behind the Knife. Happy to be here. Um, so, Dr. Narayan, uh, and just for our listeners out there, some might not realize Cornell is in uh, Manhattan in the Upper East Side. Uh, obviously, we're getting hit very hard. Can you just give us the background for your past weekend and what you've been dealing with? Sure. So I took over the surgical ICU care last Monday. So it's been a week. <laughs> we had zero patients in our ICU as we were getting ready to clear out. By midweek, we've had 20 COVID vented patients and we're, fe- we're, we're filled to the max. It has been a trying time, not just for our staffing models for the acute care surgery teams, but also, and very much so, our staffing models for the resident teams, the house staff, the staffing models for our fellows, our nurses. And so the ratios that we knew before, the silos that we worked in before, if there's a lesson that I can impart this week that, that we've learned and we've learned very quickly, is whatever hat I attached to the name surgical ICU was blown up. I will tell you the model we used. We had one intensivist. I played that role this week. I had one or two internal medicine attendings who were rounding with me in a co-rounding structure. Most most importantly, to operationalize them should they need to go and run their own unit in the coming weeks. Underneath them was a fellow, one fellow for for 20 vented patients, and then four to five house staff, each taking care of four to five sick vented patients. So that was our model for what we did this past week. Yeah, that's it's uh, definitely scary times. And, and I think the, what we want to do here behind the knife is to get another episode out that focuses on management. Uh, really, um, we'll talk about the presentation and workup, but really the management of COVID-19 patients. Um, and we want to focus this on people on the front line. So the surgery residents and, and attendings uh, that are going to be uh, that are waiting or already have that onslaught of, of patients uh, that uh, New York has already seen. Um, and, and as you know, I mean, before we get started, things are changing so rapidly. Uh, so much of what we discuss may be very well out of date in, in short order. And as we go through this, this episode today, uh, we're going to use a number of resources, uh, among them the Society of Critical Care Medicine Surviving Sepsis uh, Campaign COVID Guidelines. Uh, we've been referencing Department of Defense Guidelines. Uh, there are excellent guidelines from a number of institutions. Um, uh, to name a few that I, I found uh, to be excellent were Mass General's, University of Michigan's as well, and we can provide some links in the show notes to some other resources that compile all these into one spot. But 
Uh, Dr. Narayan, I think we, I think we should start with just a quick review of the pathophysiology of uh, COVID. And, and really, this hits three main systems, uh, obviously, the respiratory system, the lungs, uh, cardiac, and inflammatory. And so what are we seeing with these patients um, who uh, present to the unit and require emergent intubation for COVID? So great question. You've hit it on the head. All the guidelines are telling you the exact inflammatory response that this novel agent is causing. You know, when you develop this acute shortness of breath, and we see the transition from when they first come into the emergency room and how rapid or they've been admitted to the floor and how rapidly they can go from doing minimal O2 support and then going straight into pulmonary failure and requiring right. aggressive respiratory rescue. The concern that we have here is in that transition period, and I think it's important for all the learners who are, who are listening, all the caretakers, providers who are listening, that in a pandemic, there is no emergency. And I think I've already seen this week, our intent, we are driven, we are programmed, that if somebody is not doing well, we run to them. Think about a trauma arrest, think about a cardiac arrest, think about any situation where there's an alarm going off. You are trained to run towards that problem. And what I think one of the most important lessons, especially regarding intubation or dislodged DT2 or even arrest, is to remember that before you rush in, you need to be fully protected because otherwise you could be the patient in the next bed. And I think that's been a very hard thing for people to understand and where people have slipped up. I will tell you that the people who think, well, you know, I'm young, I'm healthy, I can do this. I've had partners who are around my age, I'm not that old, who contracted this virus through an asymptomatic carrier. And that's the problem. We're going to talk about the asymptomatic carriers in a bit. But the, the inflammatory process that leads to respiratory failure warrants early intubation, warrants an anesthesia team that's designated to do the intubations. If you're lucky enough to have those teams pre-established, it's important. It's important for them to don the N95 or equivalent mask. Some people have PAPRs, which is a powered respirators. That's not available to many places. But you need that. You need your gloves. You need your gowns. And you need eye protection because this is a very virulent problem, and we don't want our providers getting sick. Once they're on the ventilator, you know, we then rapidly, just like every other model has talked about, is employing ARDSNET low-volume lung protective strategy. These patients like PEEP. They like PEEP early. <clears throat> There's been some discussions as to the mode. What is the ideal mode? I'm hoping that everybody you've talked to has said the mode doesn't matter but so much. The concepts are much more important. If you can achieve the low-volume lung protective strategy with whatever mode you want to choose, that's okay. I would, coming from a center such as, such as shock trauma, and being taught under the tutelage of Nader Habashi, one of the fathers of APRV, if you will, it, and I'm a big proponent of it. What I'm a little bit scared of is as we become force multipliers in our hospital, and now I have people who are coming on shift after me, and they're uncomfortable either managing APRV if they have a Draeger, or if it's got to be bi-level with some adjustment depending on what ventilator they have, that mistakes can be made if they're not comfortable with the mode. So again, the lesson here is the mode is less important. The concepts are much more important. Sure, sure. So I think, you know, a lot to unpack there based on what you're talking about. These, these folks, they come in sick and they rapidly decompensate. And, and based on what people are, are sharing about the disease is that there's really two main stages and a, a replicate, a replicative stage where, where the viral replicates. And this can happen over a period of seven days, uh, several days, and you have this innate immune response. Uh, but ultimately, the, the virus and the folks who get sick is unable to be contained. And, and during that time, though, they have relatively mild symptoms. And then when you hit this second phase, this adaptive immunity phase, is when your immune response kicks in. And, and virus titers may fall from what, what we've read, but you also have this increased level of inflammatory cytokines, and this leads to tissue damage. And this is this, this terrible clinical deterioration that we were talking about. 
where you have this diffuse alveolar damage, um, uh, pneumocyte damage, and direct injury to the lung and oftentimes an ARDS type picture. And so we're going to talk about that uh, in a bit here about specific vent management strategies, proning, um, et cetera. Uh, so let's, let's go back. Um, um, uh, Dr. Ryan, what do you, um, what do these patients look like? So they come into the ED, uh, and they quickly, this, this whole picture of a quickly decompensating patient. Can you, can you paint a picture for us or give an example of one patient that sticks out in your mind as a representative yeah. to set, to tell us what kind of time frame and, and, and how you approach that? So great question. <clears throat> and, you know, I th- think that the idea here is if I could paint the picture of somebody who may come in with a little bit of shortness of breath, who says, you know what, I'm just feeling uncomfortable. And the problem is, is that you have people who are in a mild, moderate, and severe state for where, where, where so which road they're going to take. Some people will have that shortness of breath, but you know what? They're able to still have oxygen exchange. They're not getting lightheaded. Others, others will present with that same problem, but you put them on the pulse ox and now they're hypoxic. And those are the ones that you need to really worry about to say, okay, I'm going to put them on six liters of nasal cannula. And our policy, just like it has been for other folks initially, was to say, we're going to forego any non-invasive mode of ventilation because of the aerosol generation of those procedures, such as high-flow nasal cannula. And the limitation was provided that if those modalities are used, they should be used in negative pressure rooms. Well, that makes a lot of sense. And so what you had then is this patient comes in, this hypoxic patient, rapidly declines. Now you're having to escalate their care by intubating them quickly because you can't bridge them to anything else. You go six liters nasal cannula, early intubation, right? Well, guess what's happening out on the floor? The, the policy over the weekend was, well, we have so many patients now who are hypoxic. High flow is now being used on the floors. That's a big problem, right? Because now you have the ICUs that once the patient comes to the ICU intubated and they're lined up, now it's a game of, it's a chess match with their physiology, right? You're tweaking the ventilator. You're, you're adjusting their renal failure, which I'll talk about later on, I'm sure, with you all, because we're mm-hmm. seeing a fair amount of acute kidney injury happening with these patients. But it's a relatively controlled environment. And if they fail our ventilator strategies, then we, you know, and they become dysynchronous, they get paralyzed. And then if they're still having difficulties with oxygenation, we will then prone them, right? But mm-hmm. out on the floors, you have these hypoxic patients and you're running out of ventilators, which we're running out of, or having a hard time finding them, then it's a, it's a race against the clock. And if you have a high flow machine for that individual, that's what's being used. And so one can only imagine people who are asymptomatic or people who are non-carriers now becoming carriers on the floor. And so I think what you're seeing, and I think it's important to, to think about this, Houses of care, hospitals will be designated COVID and non-COVID, at least in theory that makes sense, right? So so Cornell over the next week will become a fully COVID positive hospital. That's the expectation. I just got off the phone with leadership just a, a little while ago, and that is the expectation, that our hospital will be entirely COVID positive, and anybody who's COVID negative will either go to the Javits Center or go to the, with the USNS Comfort or go to other hospitals such as HSS that will hopefully be COVID negative. So I hope that starts the answer to the question. Yeah, absolutely. So, so let's 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 continue on that same vein in regards to this the respiratory failure itself and and how we how we manage these folks. Um, what do you or what what has uh, been discussion regarding heated high flow nasal cannula um, uh, in terms of what the actual risk is with aerosolization? Well, so, you know, everything that we've heard about is that this part, these, the virus particles, you know, are transmitted through droplets. And if they're in the aerosol that's being generated by this high flow mechanism or by any other procedure, right? Intubation, bronchoscopy, suctioning a patient, doing a tracheostomy on a patient, right? 
these will all increase the level of risk. And the problem here, guys, is that forget the risk of the provider who may be wearing the, the respirator. Once it gets into the environment, it then sticks to that environment. And <clears throat> there's been reports of the virus particles being around for up to six to seven days. Cleaning happens, but still, it's so it's a problem. And the unknown here is then leading us to say, if you can avoid it, do it. Obviously, when we run out of ventilators and you have somebody who's hypoxic and you have no choice, just like Cornell is doing now, you may not have a choice and you're going to employ whatever mode you have. But I think that's the theoretical concern, that if you use this and you use this in a non-negative pressure room, and remember the negative pressure room concept that people think of, if the people inside the room are still at risk, Right. It's just to make sure that it doesn't spread outside. But that group, people who are doing the procedures and who are in the room taking care of the patients are still at equal risk as they would be in a non-negative pressure room. Sure. Now, are you seeing do you have any patients um, with this huge bump right now that are being placed on non-invasive ventilation? Or is that an absolute no, no? It's an absolute no, no. Our, our practice right now is that we have gone to we're, we're using a AC, BC mode to start with. We're using the low volume strategy. We're making sure we're keeping an eye on plateau pressures, keeping them less than 30. We are then, if we're having trouble using paralytic, and if we're having troubles, then we're proning. Three out of our 20 patients are prone right now in the surgical ICU. I think half of the medical ICU is prone as we speak currently. Okay. So you mentioned a couple of key things there in terms of ventilator management, right? We're talking about ARDS uh, style, ours in that style management where we have low tidal volume, 6 cc per kg of ideal body weight, plateau pressures less than 30. Uh, if you're interested in driving pressure, somewhere between less than 10 to 15 centimeters of water or so as well. Um, the, there's been some discussion about PEEP. Um, has there, uh, at Cornell, are you guys, have you gone over whether or not to stick to a higher low, you know, our ARSNET has a high PEEP table and a low PEEP table. Are you trying to use one or the other, or is it patient-specific? Yeah, it is patient-specific, but I will tell you, in the experience we've had so far, it's consistent that these patients like the high PEEP. Right. So so I would not be shy with employing higher levels of PEEP than you normally would, keeping in mind all the negative attributes that PEEP has, right? So it's going to decrease your circulating volume, and if you do is it too high, you got barotrauma. But I'll tell you that the initial experience is they do like PEEP, keeping with that lung protective strategy. Exactly. And and you know, I want to point out to our listeners that that high PEEP table uh, for folks who don't deal with ventilators too much may actually be kind of startling, right? Because 50, 60 percent FiO2 means, if I remember correctly off the top of my head, I'm not looking at it right now, PEEPs of up to 14, 16, 18. So these are high levels of PEEP, and, and uh, you know, just as you said, when you consider these in these patients. Um, you said next, uh, once we, and, and within the ventilator strategy, we're not going to go into too much about volume control versus pressure and or APRV, but just those basic protective um, strategies. But you mentioned neuromuscular blockade next. Uh, is that is, if someone is not doing well in the vent, is that your next step? So I think the way to think about neuromuscular blockade is really if they're becoming dyssynchronous with the ventilator. And we've seen that. We've seen that happen in four or five of our patients last week. And that dyssynchrony then worsens their hypoxemia, right? And so, you know, it's not used routinely. It's only used for those patients who are dyssynchronous. And I think that once you become, you know, have that synchrony back, if they still continue to progress, you know, there have been some discussions uh, with, if you look at some of the, the algorithms about using inhaled nitric, we have not done that routinely here. We have said that if you're still having troubles with the paralytics, we will then prone you. And sure. <clears throat> proning again, and we'll talk about the Proceva trial, I'm sure, but important mm -hmm. to remember that if it is a resource-intensive process, we are fortunate here that we've early on developed a proning team where people mm -hmm. will go and help the different units that need proning, but just magnify it. You know, again, we're looking at it through the lens of our individual units, right? Well, once one intensivist is now responsible for up to 96 vented patients, you know, 
think about the burden that's going to put on our, our resources to try to prone everybody. And so it is not foreseeable that everybody's going to get proned and, and not definitely not for the 16 hours, which was recommended in the procedure trial. And so, so it's easy to put that down on an algorithm when you have small numbers, right? When, when you start to start to increase the volume, then all of a sudden these suggestions are saying we're doing the best we can. Today was the deadliest day, 815 deaths, I believe, as of this hour. Uh, today is the deadliest day for COVID, but just this is the problem. And regardless of these strategies, understanding that after the paralytics are on board, use and, and if you're having continued difficulty with hypoxemia, that thinking about proning patients early makes a bunch of sense, but only so far as to say, how many people are you going to prone? Mm-hmm. How many people is it going to take? If you have one intensivist and you have 96 patients that you're now covering, and now you have multiple people that are required to prone this person, you know, it's just a resource intensive problem that is going to take some logistical planning for. Yeah. So the procedure trial, as you know, recommended 16 hours of prone time. And that's a long time. And obviously that takes a lot of effort on nursing staff to be vigilant so that we're not causing more problems. But, you know, so it's not a clear-cut answer, and we have not had anybody that I'm aware of now, at least in the SICU or the MICU, that is that has been put on ECMO, although I will say across the enterprise, there are some folks who are on ECMO currently. So do, do you have you, with all these folks being proned, uh, have you picked up any tips or tricks, uh, maybe from nursing staff, uh, that uh, helps with safer, more efficient proning? Yeah, so absolutely we have. I think that, you know, usually when, before I came to, to Cornell and to Parkland when I was at Shock Trauma, you know, we used the rotoprone bed, right? We had beds that were just readily available that you just cranked and you were able to prone them. Well, you're not going to be able to get enough beds of those specialty beds. And so this is where having that proning team that we've, that we've employed who can help show how to properly pad, how to properly protect the airway, how to properly protect pressure points or any other tubes, IVs and lines that the patient has, you know, many of these patients are now on CVVH. And so how can you safely prone patients who are on CVVH? So, so those are the tips and tricks that I think that we've learned through experience again. And, and that's what's going to help us expand it, but make no mistake about it. It is a clearly resource intensive problem. Sure. A couple other points in regards to respiratory management. Um, uh, in general, we want to keep it, uh, these people uh, with a conservative or manage these folks with a conservative fluid management type strategy. Um, have you found issues in terms of hemodynamic instability, septic shock, need for a whole bunch of fluids? I understand that's not so much the case with these patients, that um, that fluid management can be kept relatively conservative. Is that your experience so far? Mm-hmm. So it's a great question. I will tell you that I think we've been a little bit too judicious with our fluid. This inflammatory response that takes place, right, just like you would for any septic patient, driven by your parameters, we have not seen elevated lactates here, interestingly enough, but our our base deficits in some of these patients and our pHs, I think, have taken a hit on several of them. Urine output is a good marker using CVP. I'm not a fan, although deltas can still be relevant. I think this is where point-of-care ultrasound has helped us tremendously. We've done this routinely on our patients to really assess volume responsiveness. But this acute kidney injury that we're seeing, you know, there was some initial thought that is this the, the virus, is this COVID-19 that's, that's causing this ATN-type picture. Maybe it is. And, but one of the thoughts is, are we giving too little fluid? And so I think, you know, the idea that one should be conservative fluid strategy, it makes a bunch of sense globally. But in a subset of these patients, it may not. And I think you need to be not shy of giving them fluid. Once mm-hmm. they reach equilibrium, then, of course, you can take that fluid off. But guess what else we can't do? Afford all these patients to require CBVH. I mean, that's just a not going to happen. And so 
I think that there needs to be a fine balance between giving it being conservative, but not giving enough so that they're actually hurting them. And all of their all of their urine lights, by the way, come back as pre-renal, which has yep. been very interesting. Understood. So you got to find that right zone. Uh, not too much, not too little, right? Just right. So a couple other things for respiratory uh, management. Um, bronchoscopy. Uh, is there any indication for a bronchoscopy? Certainly uh, we can consider bronchoscopy in patients with mucus plugging or post-viral pneumonia or other, other things that may require um, intervention uh, with the appropriate PPE. But more or less, we are staying away from any bronchoscopy or BALs, anything that breaks the circuit. Is that correct? That is correct. <clears throat> that is spot on, which is a clear deviation from our normal practices, right? I mean, bronchoscopy is used more so here at Cornell than it was at the other centers that I was at, but pretty aggressively, either to drive our diagnostic capability, BAL-wise, to help with fever and to help with white count to see what sort of mnemonic process is going on. But you've taken an important diagnostic tool off the armamentarium, off the shelf. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important that, again, this generates aerosols, and that predisposes the provider to significant risk. And so, yeah, I, I agree with everybody that say you should have a very high threshold for bronchoscopy. Do not just think that it's a routine, I'm going to go ahead and get a specimen. It's just not not the case. Right. In uh, the same kind of vein, tracheostomy. So uh, certainly there's some different considerations with COVID when it comes to deciding who may or may not need a trach. Uh, this is obviously a high-risk procedure in regards to aerosolization, and so uh, has to be taken into consideration as well as the timing and or the need for COVID patients. What, what are we, uh, I think, when I understand we're not rushing or not going as early on the trachs because these folks may have a bit more of a prolonged their time course, but the people that do recover are able to get off the vent um, maybe a week, two weeks out or so. Uh, what's your thought on that? So the question of tracheostomy, you know, comes up and it will start to come up because these patients are not your typical run-of-the-mill critical care patients who go on the vent for a few days and then we can rapidly wean them, right? These are the, it's going to be, you're going to go on, you're going to stay on, and you're going to likely require prolonged respiratory care and support. I'm a fan of saying that, look, we should be delaying our tracheostomy. And what does early and what does late mean here? Usually by the two-week threshold, every Everybody says, you know, two weeks, okay, we should start consulting general surgery, trauma, thoracic, ENT, whoever, to do this procedure. <clears throat> I think it would be wise of us to consider delaying that up to three weeks. I think that we need some guidance as to how to best do it. The, I talked to you about those PAPR respir respirators for the mm -hmm. providers. Some hospitals have them. We at Cornell currently do not have them, but it would be a consideration. One of my partners, Jeff Milsom, who heads up our colorectal unit, made a, made a great point this evening at our faculty department of surgery meeting that said, look, what happens if the attending surgeon wears the pepper and the resident across the table has a regular old mask? What happens if the attending anesthesiologist wears the pepper and the CRNA doesn't. So there is a problem there in terms of risk mitigation and also the message that you're sending to your team members. So mm -hmm. who gets to do the trick? What equipment do we need? How do we minimize aerosolization? Is open trick the better way to go? Is it or is, is percutaneous approach way to go? Luke Morris, I believe, at MSK is, is working. Dr. Morris is working on some guidelines on on a national guideline, I think, I believe, on who to trach and, and, and considerations for tracheostomy. But this is going to be a big problem, especially in centers that don't have high-volume tracheostomies on a day-to-day -day basis. You know, you're, you're taxing your, your – you know, we take the lens that we are the quaternary hospital. But what's happening at the level ones or the level threes and the level fours in the smaller community hospitals when these patients now need to stay for prolonged periods of time, we don't have an answer for that. Right. And how do we safely, how do we protect the one general surgeon? Remember now, 
you know, Dr. Verdi always to always say half the counties in this in this country lack a general surgeon. And now you take those counties and you stress it with our workforce and say, now you're going to be the one doing the tracheostomy and putting yourself at risk. We need to give them some guidance. Sure. And this may very well may change out of necessity as, as the, as the pandemic spreads. You mentioned uh, a PAPR. I want to just want to mention, uh, PAPRs, um, is a battery powered blower. It attaches to a positive airflow filter that, um, blows into a hood or, or a face mask. Uh, it, it stands for powered air purifying respirator, just for those who haven't seen it before. And, um, they are ideally what we people would be wearing, but uh, certainly it's a harder piece of equipment to get our hands on and, and in high demand. One of the last, you know, just to add, go ahead. Well, I'm sorry, just to add to your question or your comment there. If you look at countries who've been able to to blunt the charge, right, to blunt the stem of these patients, you look at those pictures and, and you say, my God, they're wearing this unbelievable head-to-toe suit. They've got these pappers on, and they've done it in a way that's minimal exposure to the healthcare worker and maximum care for the patient. We are so behind the eight ball that you've got the lead center, the number five hospital system in the country, and we don't have pappers yet. And some people do, but you, you've got to think that the coordinated response to this has been uh, as best as we can do it, right, as individuals, as systems. But obviously, getting the healthcare teams this sort of equipment may help stem the tide elsewhere because it's obviously too late in New York. Without a doubt. Uh, last thing on in the respiratory standpoint, we, talk, we touched briefly on ECMO. Uh, does Cornell have you had discussions about ECMO candidacy, about resource utilization uh, for your patients coming in during this surge? Yes, we have. We've been very, we've gotten a lot of support from our cardiothoracic colleagues who have put together an algorithm for who would be a candidate and who would not be. There's an age criterion, there's a physiologic criterion. Just remember for the listeners, ECMO, extracorporeal membranes, oxygenation is a good technique as long as you're bridging your patient to somewhere, which means that if they have an irreversible problem, and you're not able to bridge them to some semblance of quality of life, then ECMO is not for consideration. We are in uncharted territories here. The world's most powerful country, the world's most affluent country, who's never had to, to tell their their patients that, no, this, this modality is not available. Unlike NHS in the UK or the healthcare system in New Zealand, for example, that if you're above 65 and you need dialysis, they say, thank you very much. We're not paying for it. If you would like to pay for it out of your own pocket, you're here, you're free to do so. We had not had that problem here. But ECMO is one of those things where it is unreasonable to think that multiple patients or some percentage of the volume that we're seeing are going to be put on this therapy. It's just not something that we're going to be able to do, and hence the very selective nature. And it, this gets to the great point of where palliative care ethics gets involved. You know, the governor just made the announcement, please, New York hospital caretakers, healthcare workers, be selective in who you decide to offer the ventilator to. That announcement just went out today, March 31st. Please be selective in who you offer the ventilator to. So you can see that this is going to be a who gets what, and everybody is not going to get everything. Wow. Well, that is uh, quite a dilemma to deal with on a daily basis. I just want to drive it in a little bit different direction. I want to take it down the cardiac pathway. I've heard reports that uh, many of these patients uh, are hypotensive and have elevated troponins, um, though it appears to be more of a myocarditis than a type 1 cardiac ischemia. Um, have, have, have you guys seen this in, in this patient population, and how are you dealing with these uh, elevated troponins? Are you checking them? Do you not check them and, and any treatments for that. Yeah. So important question. <clears throat> yes, these patients do come in hemodynamically labile, especially those who have the brunt of that inflammatory cascade. We've been starting them on Levofed as our initial pressure of choice. 
adding vasopressin <clears throat> as needed for titrating our levofed <clears throat> to higher double-digit numbers. We have seen a few of the patients come in with elevated troponins. I think it's imperative to remember that when you have lab markers, the lab markers are as good as the lab markers are, use your clinical judgment. These patients can come in with other problems. It's not unreasonable to think that if the respiratory system is being stressed, that the cardiac system, which is tied to that, in these elderly patients who are the highest risk, that they develop a myocardial infarction. Now, with these elevated troponins, you're right, it's much more of a myocarditis picture rather than a true infarction. And so we're trending those troponins out. We're, you know, so, and there's some concern that the way these patients end up eventually dying is that they enter into this uncontrolled inflammatory cascade. And basically they become hyperthermic and then they develop this, this cardiomyopathy and then basically have an arrest. So I guess the question becomes, if you do have those elevated troponins, I think it's smart to trend those so that you can see them to their natural <clears throat> clearance if possible, or at least downtrending, and make mm -hmm. sure then that you're following your, your EKGs along with that. Yeah. Have you had uh, patients with uh, sudden arrest or severe uh, arrhythmias that you've seen last week? So, yeah, we have not had... One of those this week, we did have an unfortunate scenario of a young trauma patient who came in who had basically was drunk. Low GCS was intubated, tested positive for COVID. X-ray looked suspicious at that classic infiltrates that, you, that everybody has seen now, but eventually was able to get extubated and monitored for upwards of eight hours in our ICU went to the floor sometime at 8 p.m., and then around 3 a.m. was called for respiratory distress, full sub-Q emphysema, and then died. And I got to tell you, it, it sounds like that that looks like a, a tracheal or an anatomic problem to get that degree of, of massive sub-Q emphysema. We won't know, obviously, until the autopsy is done. But that's the one death that we've had this this past week, and I but I have not seen yet the the hyperthermic cardiac you know arrests like I've described that other colleagues have seen around the globe. I see. Uh, let's talk. I'm gonna move a bit over to infectious disease management, some initial labs, um, and and how we can treat this in regards to steroids, antiretroviral and antiviral agents, etc. So, based on reports, it sounds like these folks are coming in with normal white counts or with some lymphopenia as well, um, and maybe some mild thrombocytopenia. Uh, the CRP, uh, I understand, tends to be elevated, and this tracks with uh, disease severity and prognosis. And in addition to that, a lot of the guidelines talk about getting a procalcitonin. Are you using procalcitonin? How are you using it? Yes. So, you know, it, it's funny how procalcitonin has its initial supporters, and then people were like, well, it takes too long, and it, it may or may not help me. But, but we have been using it as a as a additional guide, if you will. Am I convinced that it's giving us any additional information in the, in the 20 that I've taken care of? No. You know, I, I think that everything you've said I agree with. You know, we're checking our routine labs. I think it's important to trend the lymphocyte count with your differential. I, I think getting a, a CRP and an ESR is helpful to help stratify. I do think that, you know, the initial care of these patients, initially we had said anybody who was admitted and we got guidance from our infectious disease colleagues, they were put on ceftriaxone and doxy, and we have stopped doing that routinely because this is a viral component. We have been, and I think it's important to understand that despite limited data, Despite limited data, we have been placing uh, placing these patients who have been admitted to our ICU on a five-day course of hydroxychloroquine. Mm -hmm. The data, yeah. as you've heard Dr. C and everybody else talk about, there is no data to support whether it works or not. Interestingly enough, we've also had our first patient at Cornell enroll in the, the IL-6 inhibitor trials as well. And so 
I think this is right for discussion as to whether this is going to work. There have been some discussions of pairing hydroxychloroquine with azithromycin. That has not been our practice, one, because there's an azithromycin shortage, and two, the data is just not out there to support that. Sure. So let, let's talk about a couple things we, we touched on briefly. I'm going back to the concept of a uh, concomitant bacterial infection. Um, have you seen that often? Uh, if you have, for instance, a procalcitonin level that's greater than 0.5, um, I guess for our user or for our listeners, typically if it's below 0.25, we think a bacterial infection in general is unlikely if you follow and, and along with procalcitonin or if you like to use this clinically, usually cut off a 0.25 and below unlikely uh, bacterial infection, 0.25 or 0.5 and above possible or likely bacterial infection. Uh, are you treating patients then empirically with um, with antibiotics if they have a high procalcitonin? So we are not. We are. We have not seen in any of our now limited in terms of blood cultures, right? Many of these people have febrile responses. We have not, with guidance from our infectious disease colleague, seen many, many, many co-infections with bacterial. Uh, infections at the same time. We just haven't seen that yet. Mm-hmm. One of the concerns we have, though, is that we're very early on in this surge of patients. And as they stay in the ICU for prolonged periods of time, right? Now you're talking about vented patients now for more than two, two weeks. Then what happens? Because they are going to be at risk for developing those, con- you know, concomitant bacterial infections. And now, What's the best way to diagnose them? So I think in the initial onset, the answer is we have not. But as mm-hmm. we move further away from time zero, from the time they get admitted, yes, you're absolutely correct. that We're going to rely on our on our procalcitonins because we can't get BAL specimens, or if we do, we're going to need to be selective. And then tailor some sort of antibiotic regimen, but it's just unknown yet. And so, but that's the fear that we have, and that was just discussed today at our faculty meeting. Sure, and, and one of the studies out of China uh, base, uh, said about a 15% uh, rate for hospitalized patients are developing a secondary bacterial infection, uh, but that was based on clinical symptoms and, and positive uh, cultures as well. Um, and, and you know, it might be worth uh, if. You know, you're in the in down in, in the trenches, and it might be worth talking to your respiratory therapist about the difference as well between uh, bronchoscopy, bronchial alveolar lavage, and tracheal aspirates. The la- the last of which can be done without breaking um, the circuit, and and may be able to provide some information with tracheal aspirates that uh, um, may be helpful in managing or, or or evaluating or diagnosing someone with a bacterial infection as well. Um, you. Uh, You mentioned a bit bit about hydroxychloroquine or um, chloroquine, and, you know, this is an interesting medication because this is an anti-malarial, right? And it has a number of immune-modifying effects and and used to treat autoimmune conditions, uh, but it also has some antiviral effects uh, and as well may or may not interfere with the ACE2 receptor. So um, I poured over the data for this, and as you mentioned, the data is not great at all. uh, but this appears to be based on the guidelines uh, and what you said and based on the guidelines that are available, uh, a first-line agent uh, for folks that are um, getting getting sick or are somewhat sick. And I think, I think here's the thing. People are getting sick. We're frustrated, right? We're used to patients coming in with problems and giving them best treatment. The reason why this is so novel for us is because it's something new, something, and we have, think about this now, we have a medication that was meant as an anti-malarial, and we're hoping that it does the work against this novel virus. And there is, there are cases that, you know, they've been patients who've been treated with this, and now they think that this is the next, you know, treatment of choice, and I don't disagree with our approach to say, look, the downsides of treating versus the upsides, we can weigh the risks and benefits and say, okay. But I just, I want to be clear, and I agree here with Dr. Fauci and other experts to say, we really need more data. And that data will come. It'll come and it'll trickle in as we start to pull together 
our patients. But I just want to be mindful that we have patients who have been treated with those five days of hydroxychloroquine, and guess what? They're still right where they were when I left them. Mm-hmm. Now, whether whether it mitigated the inflammatory response, it changed their course, those are all things to be determined. But let's be clear, we have those patients who've been treated, and and some of them were treated at outside hospitals for that course, and now they've been transferred to us for a higher level of care. So so the long story short is, is that, yes, maybe, am I opposed to giving it? No. Have I seen that the people we give the hydroxychloroquine to have met, you know, magically turned the corner? I have not seen that. Sure. Uh, you mentioned, uh, and again, there is, again, no data, but let's talk just briefly about uh, tocolizumab. That's one of these IL-6 inhibitors. Um, this may or thought to potentially ameliorate severe lung damage uh, caused by cytokine release in general. And this may be also helpful in treatment of a true cytokine storm uh, as well when these patients are, are, are very sick. Um, this is something that also is, is, is in the um, many of the guidelines. Uh, there's also a randomized control trial. It's a phase three uh, trial that is, is going yeah. on right now. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, and so you said you, you do have access to uh, uh, IL-6 inhibitors and have used them, correct? We have enrolled our first patient and through the auspice of the infectious disease uh, folks to try to see if we can't, you know, enroll it and see what happens. But again, it's, it's early. I'm glad that the FDA has approved it as a trial for it, but I think we, you know, we're going to need more data, but at least we're enrolling patients, which is better than not enrolling patients. Right. And then, and then a next uh, set of meds would be the antiviral. Uh, uh, meds. So remdesivir is one that that has, I guess, is thought to be one of the more promising. It's a broad spectrum antiviral. There, there's several phase three trials going on, not just in the U.S. as well, but South Korea and China as well. Uh, but to get remdesivir, you have to apply through uh, Gilead's, which is the manufacturer's expanded access program. Um, have you discussed that at all, Cornell? Uh, is that being used as well? We have discussed it. To my knowledge, we, we have not given it because of the access problem. I know for sure we have not given it in our surgical intensive care. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, I think more to come. I, I am hoping that, you know, there is some good antiretroviral that we could use. And we'll, we'll have to wait and see. But right now we have very limited experience with, with remdesivir. Sure. And then the big gun, steroids. So... Uh, steroids, you know, we can think about using steroids for the treatment of COVID-19 directly or think about the use of steroids and kind of the way we may think about them pre-COVID era in that it could be useful in severe cases of ARDS. Have you been using steroids in your patients? We have not. And our thought here is that we think steroids may potentially make the case worse. Now, the concern that some of my partners have will say, look, if the patient is crashing and they're, they're not getting any better. And of course, the exception I'm going to make here is obviously patients who are, are giving you increasing pressure requirement and their adrenal access needs to be, you know, stimulated. I'm not talking about those adrenally insufficient folks who can give you a proper response. I'm talking mm-hmm. about in terms of modulation, right? Seeing if the steroids can help blunt that inflammatory cascade. <clears throat> we have not used it. We are watching. We are seeing, you know, it, we have not given it as a last ditch yet to say, you know, will it hurt or, or not in, in a patient we think is heading towards, you know, impending death. But uh, it has not been our strategy yet to use it for the respiratory failure that we're seeing with COVID-19. Okay. All right. Is there any... Uh Anything else you think in regards to clinical management specifically, ICU level management that you might want to share with us? You know, the other thing that we're starting to see with these patients, I I mentioned to you the acute kidney injury and that we've placed many people on CVVH. We found here is that the machine is clotting at a little bit faster rate than we would expect you know, in our general population. So is there some sort of thrombotic 
phenomenon that is going on. It is something, it's just an observation. I know others have commented in, in, the, in the media and in the literature talking about the use of anticoagulation to mitigate some of these patients. There was one study that looked at using anti-asthmatic medication and, and anticoagulation to prevent intubation in these patients. So I'm not sure, but that is one thing that I would be mindful of is that are these patients actually, you know, prothrombotic? And one way to assess that then could be the use of, and this is where areas of study will come about, is the use of things such as Rotem and Teg to see are these patients coagulopathic or not, or are they thrombotic, or, or what sort of derangement do they have in that coagulation cascade? Right, and I've seen some studies um, out of China talking about DIC developing uh, in, in the especially sick folks as well. Are, are your um, are your CRT machines? Do you use systemic anticoagulation at all, or, or circuit based anticoagulation with citrate, or none, none at all? Yeah, so we're using citrate, and we're comfortable with using that, and that has helped. But we've had several, even despite the citrate, that the machine clots off, and so which is not the norm. Uh, and so do we then consider, you know, depending on where you are in that circuit, either pre or post or within, right, in terms of anticoagulation, that is something that we're discussing and discussing closely with our nephrology colleagues. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. well, as a, as a vascular fellow, I'm uh, especially concerned about that uh, thrombosis risk. Um, <laughs> But Dr. Narayan, uh, I think we I think we should have you back on in a couple of weeks to really see what we've learned as as New York goes through this peak. I know everything is a moving target, and I appreciate you answering these questions, knowing that uh, the the recommendations may change in the coming weeks to months to years that we learn to deal with this disease. But uh, thank you very much for joining us, and and thank you, Patrick, for leading this discussion. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm so happy to have been here, and Dr. Ryan, we really really appreciate you taking the time during such a trying and, 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 and busy uh, time for you. I think everybody's trying to do their part. One of the messages that I'll leave with your listeners is that we're all in this together. Please break down the silos, whatever hat that you have, your, your own little group. We are all now COVID-19 physicians, nurses, healthcare workers together. Please don't forget the people who are on the front lines who are cleaning the rooms, the techs that are getting you the supplies. They're just a as much risk, if not more, than the people who are outside the rooms making the decisions. And so please protect yourselves and your families. And I look forward to being on. I want to commend both of you. These types of platforms uh, will really help get the message across. And uh, I've learned a lot from you guys, and I look forward to, to contributing, continuing to listen as well. Until next time, dominate the day. 